0: In many of the case studies shared in this podcast, we have discussed care of patients with ARDS. Sedation, paralytics, and immobility can occasionally be appropriate during some extremes of ARDS and repercussions such as ICU acquired weakness can seem to be an unavoidable result of conditions such as septic shock. Yet, what about cases in which sedation and immobility is inflicted on a patient? without high ventilator settings? Can they develop ICU-acquired weakness without significant risk factors such as paralytics or septic shock? Can sedation and immobility alone cause days to weeks of extra time on the ventilator? Suzanne, an ICU survivor, shares with us her unfortunate but not uncommon ICU journey. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being willing to share your journey with us. Do you mind giving
1: us an introduction? Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Suzanne and I'm 49 years old. I'm originally from Germany but have been living in the States for nearly 10 years now with my family in Florida and I have been working in tourism my whole life, my whole working life. So I left Germany when I was about 25 and started moving around the world, living in different countries and then finally met my husband and we settled down in in Florida and yes, yeah, so I've been working in, in the hotel business for the past 20 plus years and traveling a lot, meeting a lot of people around the world and um, always considered myself being in good shape and being pretty healthy. I looked, always looked after my my health and my, my nutrition a lot and made sure that I was on the right track and despite that, that you found yourself in the icu <laughs> it really can be anything. that day yes so you know when you when things like that happen to you and in my case it wasn't without like a previous illness how i ended up in icu but when you think about why it happened to you and then you start maybe seeing some signs but not signs you know there were issues so i had a bacterial infection which is i mean the technical technical term is ludwig's angina which is it's an illness which basically doesn't exist anymore i mean most of the doctors that saw me that you know they've never seen that before and it's originating in the teeth in the mouth so when i think back i did have issues for the past 3 years you know with my like throat pain and two teeth issues, but nothing really severe, nothing that, you know, would have, you know, ring the bell. So yeah, so the the um, like I mean it all started one morning. I woke up and I had a throat pain and ear pain on on the left side. But I wasn't really so surprised because I had a cold before that. And it happened to me often that when I had a cold then after it became like a like a bacterial infection like a sinus infection or bronchitis or something so I thought okay that's just something something else so I went to the doctor and they did a strep test and it came back negative so they sent me back home and they said it was a you know viral thing and you know just said you know stay at home get some rest and and, and it will get better so The next day I started to deteriorate and I, you know, getting weaker, I couldn't eat. I had a lot of nausea, I had to throw up, had a fever. So that night I went to urgent care and they did the same, COVID test, strep test, everything came back negative. And again, they said, you know, it must be viral. So, you know, just go back home. (laughs) Good luck. And good luck, yeah. And then the following night... I could feel that my whole throat, neck was starting to swell. So it became like really swollen. And the next morning, it was already like, you know, all this part really big. And so I started to panic and, you know, said to my husband, I think it's better that we go to the ER. And so we did that. We went there at nine o'clock in the morning and I spent the whole day in the ER until they admitted me that night to the hospital. And they were were actually going to put me into ICU already because they said it was better to have, you know, closer control. But it was full. So they brought me up to to a normal hospital room. And, you know, the negative, I I mean, the the timing was not the best because it was the weekend of 4th of July. It was a weekend, so it was Friday night, and so until, you know, most of the doctors were not in the hospital over the weekend, so it was basically nothing really happened until the following Tuesday in terms of a treatment plan or something. So they would put me on antibiotics and steroids, and I started no, it started to get better. Then it would start to swell again. So it was like really like a long waiting period. I think they just wanted to see if the antibiotics worked. But I think it, you know, time was lost because of this situation that nobody really with with authority was was present in the hospital. Someone who would take a decision, say, okay, let's look at this closer. So they did a CT scan and they saw that there was some fluid accumulation and what they call a neck cellulitis. But yeah, they were trying with with antibiotics for now. And yeah, so then the the Tuesday, which was four days after, I, I was still swollen. So we decided to do another CT scan and they realized that the inflammation had spread. Like there were more abscesses in the neck and that's when they decided to, or in the end, we decided between all of us to, to do surgery, to drain, to drain the fluid out. And so they did that, you know, it was a fast, fast surgery. It was my first surgery in my life. I never had surgery before that. And I had never had full anesthesia. So it was (laughs) kind of exciting. But I woke up, I was, you know, I was fine. I was tired, but I thought, okay, that's it. You know, we did it. (laughs) Let's see when I can go over when it's over. And uh, so the next day I started swelling again. And so the ENT came and they said, okay, there seemed to be an area where they didn't reach the, the drains that I had placed into my neck. So we did another CT scan and and they saw that, you know, there was this part of the neck where there was a new abscess and they couldn't reach it. So they gave me several options to either do it, you know, in place or to do it with the the long needle or to do it again in the surgery. So I decided to go for another surgery because I, I just wanted to have it properly done, you know, to have everything taken out. And so the next day they prepared for the, for the surgery, I was already very, very swollen. I was starting to, you know, to not having issues to breathe. I, my, my oxygen levels were always good. There, you know, there wasn't really an issue, but I was obviously, you know, having issues to, you know, it's, it's, it's creating a lot of panic when you have this throat getting tight.
0: Right to even just move air through your
1: trachea. Yeah, and and you know I had to cough a lot and swallow was difficult. So yeah, so they they started preparing for the second surgery. They brought the thorax team in as well because they wanted to look at the thorax and everything. And they brought me in, and and that was it. So I never woke up from that surgery until the day I woke up. So, so they essentially
0: intubated you
1: yeah. to protect your
0: airway because things were getting so swollen and tight. Yeah. They needed to make sure that they could, that you could get oxygen, right? Yeah, so that was exactly. Obviously an essential move. Great move. Did they talk to you at all about being sedated, what you might experience, what your preference would be?
1: No, I mean, not at all. I mean, I remember in the very beginning, I think it was when I was still in the ER, One of the doctors said, and I think, you know, it was a formality said, you know, if there was a life threatening situation, would you agree to be intubated? And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what can you say, but never thought of that actually happening. And so when it happened, I mean, I must say my husband was with me the whole time, but it's a chapter we haven't really talked about because he's still processing and trying to you know go on and forget and so most of the information that I have I was able to you know I got from my medical records not because someone told me so I really I don't know at this point if they asked him for any you know what do you think because obviously at that time he was the one who was taking decisions on behalf of me but yeah I mean I ended up in 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 induced coma for 16 days and the thing was obviously as you say they did it to protect my airways just I mean in case but you know obviously until they really got to the source of the whole infection it took them another six days from the moment they put me into the coma until they started to look into my teeth which was the actual source so throughout the podcast
0: we've talked to a lot of um, survivors but particularly ARDS survivors where their lungs were extremely inflamed they were high in ventilator yes. settings they had prolonged time on the ventilator um, 16 days on the ventilator that's a significant amount of time yeah but you had this inflammation the cellulitis this Ludwig's angina in your neck, but the rest of you was fine beforehand. You were awake oriented. You were calm. You weren't fighting. You were completely autonomous. And this is kind of where I think your story is really important because in the medical field, especially in the ICU, sometimes we um, accidentally sign people up for a lot more than what they came in for.
1: Yeah.
0: And so I'm sure they assumed or, it's just habitual to start the sedation after intubation. They assumed that they would make you more comfortable. That it'd be too miserable for you to be awake with this tube in your throat. And so they automatically, the knee jerk reaction just sedated you.
1: Yeah. And what did you experience? So, you know, I mean, the whole story is, is it was very frightening, the whole scenery. And I've listened to a lot of, podcasts and stories and and read from from other people that that's the case that you have situations which which are very frightening and in my case it was very curious because so I wake up in my delirium now thinking that I, I was awake
0: your alternative reality
1: yes totally so I was in this hospital room which I suppose was a hospital and but it all felt like I was on a, on a ground floor, like I was in a basement of a hospital. and I could see I could see nurses, I could see doctors. I could even see my husband sometimes and I could even hear him. But I, I had this I, I had this sensation. I was convinced that it was all a conspiracy and that my body had been sold to this people, this location where they were doing like genetic research and transforming people and, you know, organ research. And I don't know what, so. Like harvesting. Yeah. So I, you know, I saw my husband, but I I was like thinking for him, he, he is not aware he's still fighting for me, but he's not aware that I'm, you know, that's it because I'm stuck down here. And I don't think he will be able to get me out. He's just into this the same way as I am. So I would see this sign on the wall of, of my room where the, you know every, every time a nurse, the shift changes, they put up their name and, and page number. And I could read my husband's name on there. And I was like, you know, even that they fake it. I mean, to make it look more real, <laughs> the whole thing. So so yes I was in this in this in the situation and it's so funny because I mean funny it's it's amazing when you wake up and then you realize how you connect certain noises and certain images to what happened in the delirium so I had this idea or I was convinced better say that I would be transformed into a new Genetic species, which was like half human being, half fish. They even showed me a picture, and I was, you know, it was like the new species of the world, the new warriors, you know, indestructible. And I was very afraid because I thought if that's happening to me, I probably won't have a soul anymore, and then I won't be able to reincarnate and come back to my family and obviously it was very scary because I didn't know where I was I mean I had the sensation I was but I, I wasn't I didn't know was I really alive still was I on earth was I in, in, in a different galaxy in a different world where was I and this was I think the most frightening part of it because you ask yourself, why? Wh- what have you done to deserve this? To be in this situation, stuck. Nobody can hear you. Nobody can understand you. You can't move. You're totally. And I, I've always been a person that I, I, I'm very controlled. Of you know, I like to control situations in my life and where I'm going to. And stuck, being stuck in this situation where you can't control anything. You just wait there and you know, see what's happening to you, and and, and see, I mean, seeing my husband there, and, and not being able to communicate with him, I mean, it was, it was horrible, it was really horrible, I was trying to, my, my parents passed away a couple, well, quite many years ago, and I was trying to find them, like, trying to connect with them, because I thought, okay, if I'm dead, there must be somewhere around um, trying to, you know, find the light to cross the tunnel, but then I couldn't find it. So I thought, okay, I'm probably not dead if, you know. And so what happens is that some kind of situation from your life goes on into this delirium. So in my case, I can imagine because I was watching this movie with my kids a couple of days before everything happened about this. It's, it's called Luca. It's a new kids movie where this little boy uh, living in the ocean and he comes out and he becomes a human being. And it's a very cute movie. So I don't know why I have had this. Um, you thought you were
0: gonna be transformed into a fish
1: into a fish. Yeah. And, you know, I could, so I could, so I had the sensation, my hair was already gone because it was probably all stuck somewhere and I couldn't feel it. And every time they would change the dressing, I had the sensation that, you know, that the the fish scales, they would like, you know, put them on or something. So all these noises, that happened in the real life were part of my delirium but obviously translated to a completely different thing and so all this that happened to me and i heard that also in another podcast the nurses they weren't very friendly you know they weren't really treating me as a as a as someone alive you know it was like you know that's someone there but a body in the bed yeah exactly and even though in my delirium I was not like unmovable you know I could communicate with my hands and so so on so it was probably the translation of um waking ICU because in my delirium I was intubated but I could I could move to some stage no I could turn around and I could move my legs and I realized I still had both legs so I wasn't you know I didn't have a fishtail yet. (laughs) If
0: you've been listening to this podcast you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU higher healthcare costs and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So in
1: your delirium, you knew that you were intubated. No, no. Oh, okay. No, no, no. No. I I I didn't have well let's say it this way, at some stage, yes, I realized, and that's when I was trying to pull the tube. So the, the thing was, I was, I remember that at, at one time they were, and so I don't know if this was real or not, but they were trying to, to get the tube out and I was too agitated, so it didn't work out. And they were saying, okay, let's try it again in two or three more days. <gasps> And, and that was when I realized I was intubated, kind of, you know, wasn't, I wasn't aware of the tubes, but I, I was aware there was something. So I got really, I got really impatient and, and thought, okay, I have to do something. I can't just sit here and wait until something else happens or they're going to finish my transformation or I'm, I'm going to die eventually. So that's when I decided to to pull the tube and obviously it didn't work I I did I did read in my medical records because it was you know I asked my husband later if it was true and he said no but he wasn't in the hospital 24-7 so then I read in my medical records that it had actually happened that I tried to to pull the tube and uh, and then the whole this whole new scenery started because then they came to rescue me, and then there was this nurse that got very upset with me because she because I was trying to kill myself and then she got really mad and then I, I heard from another nurse that and this is all my delirium, okay mm-hmm. this is not from the real world so that she had lost a baby and that's why she got so mad with me because I wanted to end my life and I have kids and and so she talked to another nurse and then it was his shift and there was a night before they brought me back. So it was his shift. And, and then that night he tried to disconnect me and pull the tube. So I was, you know, the first time I was trying to do it, the second time he tried to do it. And again, they came and rescued me, but then everybody thought I had tried it twice. And I was trying to explain that it hadn't been me, that it had been the nurse and that I really wanted to you know I had reflected of of my life and I wanted to live and I wanted to give it a try and and luckily there was one nurse that she kind of you know understood what had happened and 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 said to me okay she would make sure that that nurse would not look after me again and so it was this whole revelation or 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 change of consciousness that i i thought okay maybe they do try to save my life and i have to cooperate a little bit i don't know but i you know when i think about all this i i just realized that i that i was conscious of a lot of things not conscious in a way that i knew what was going on but a lot of things that happened in the real world translated into my new world let's say that way so but I became realized
0: twisted. became twisted I mean maybe you had a male nurse but you interpreted as he was trying to disconnect you from the ventilator. he was trying to kill you yeah like that is my understanding is that's extremely completely real to you yeah and that must be extremely stressful
1: and terrifying to experience totally I mean it Again, the whole time and everything I lived through, I never thought that I was dreaming or that I was in a delirium. For me, that was my reality. And it's, it's, and this is also something that I, I listened to in one of your podcasts. It's not like a dream. Sometimes you know you're in a dream and you just have to wait until you wake up. This is like, you know, you're stuck in the situation and there's nothing really you can do about it. There's no, waking up and everything is, is gone. So the day they, oh, and then I, you know, they, I, I felt that they were brushing my teeth the whole time because during all these 16 days, I had two major teeth extractions because they realized that the whole infection was originated from the, from the teeth. So they pulled 18, all of my molars, 18 in total. So I, I you know, they were brushing the, the teeth that I have left. <laughs> and so I did, I did hear a lot of times the nurses talking to me. But again, I didn't translate it into the situation I had been before. I, that, that situation was gone. I mean, the, that I was sick, that I got into the hospital, that... I had a different, another surgery before. All that was gone. That was not part of, of this. And so the day they they decided to bring me back, for me it was like, okay, you know, let's give them another chance. Let's, let's try it. I'm, I'm going to cooperate and see. But it was more like to do them a favor rather than having the... the the confidence that I would come back. For me, that, that it wasn't this coming back, this going back to the real life. It, it was something different. I can't explain. It. I mean, it's not... Um, they were yeah, probably telling you things like,
0: stay calm, we're going to take out the breathing too, but mm-hmm. telling you things. And so you were cooperating in your
1: own reality. But it yeah. was yeah, I was, I mean, again, I don't know how they 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 played with the well play is not the right word, but how they you know increased or decreased the, the sedation. But all I can remember is that you know I was sitting on the bed and I was completely there. I was awake. And then you know, they came in and, and uh, did a lot of tests and, and then took the tube out, which luckily was a very fast process, oh. super. I mean, when I look up, you know, when I think about it, it was like super easy, but maybe I just was very lucky. I don't know, because, and I, I heard that they had tried it several times before and that they had tried some kind of, or that they usually do some kind of training process to train you to the day, you get the tube out and then you hear everything that can go wrong and all that. So I, again, I was very lucky, but they didn't want to do it. And my husband had to fight hard to convince them to do it that day. They wanted to leave me intubated for a longer time. And- do you know
0: how many days, for how many days did they try to wake you up or get you to, to see if you could be extubated. You said that they had tried and you even heard them say, no, let's try in a few, a few days, Mm. but you were agitated, right? I was, I was very sedation back on. Yeah. One of our big fears for patients being on ventilators is that they're going to take out their own breathing tube.
1: Yeah.
0: um, Which is what you tried to do, but it makes sense considering the reality that you were in. Yeah. You've also said that you're a person that likes to be in control. You like to know what's going on. So had you been allowed to stay in reality and wake up after intubation, do you think you would have pulled out the breathing tube, or would have been at risk of that if you had understood what it was?
1: Without being in coma, you mean? Yeah. Just yeah. under sedation. You'd have been able to wake up and be yourself. Uh, no, I don't think so. Because I mean, obviously when you are clearer in your mind, I mean, I, I understand you have to have some kind of sedation because otherwise... If you're an anxious person you could kind of freak out to have this too but if if you know it's for your good and it's to to help you survive it's the same as having the the IV or whatever you, all the things that they put into you no i don't i know because you you know you are in the real world i mean the reason why i wanted to pull the tube was because i i i couldn't i i couldn't wait anymore i just thought you know where I am now I don't want to be I don't see any chance I can go back to reality so you know I might as well pull the tube and, and 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 give it a go and it's you know it's really tough because you think of your family and I was aware that I had kids and that I had my family and and I just couldn't I couldn't stand the thought that I would not be able to see them anyway, because I would end up a fish. I mean, it's as, as funny as Gosh. it sounds. So, you know, I, I, I just saw myself that at some stage, it got, they, they would throw me into the ocean and, and that was it. So.
0: Which I think can sound like a, like a funny, silly scenario, but in the reality, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Hmm if that was what I truly believed and mourning the disconnect from my family and missing my kids and Mm. wanting my husband, like I, am trying to imagine how painful that would really be to deeply
1: believe that. Yeah. Because you really, you're stuck. You don't see any lucky outcome. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very spiritual person, but at that moment, I thought, okay, when I, when I managed to kill myself, let's say it this way, to pull the tube and die, then I have a chance to reincarnate and come back as something and maybe have a chance to see my kids, even as an animal, even as whatever,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: gosh. being thrown into the water as a fish and maybe not even be on the world we live on, I didn't see that. And that was really the, the, the thought that was the, you know, the only hope I had to die and to be able to, you know, maybe if there is some sort of reincarnation come back as whatever. And that's something um, that
0: really impacted me to hear survivors talk about the feelings of isolation and loneliness mm when, I think in reality, your husband was there most of the time and you had nurses there, but you were not connected to them and you were alone.
1: You're completely alone. Yes. I mean, obviously because of, yeah, because you're being ignored completely by everybody most of the times. And so I think if the if they were more aware also that how much patients can feel and sense while being in coma and they, and obviously with COVID it's a different scenario because of the isolation that's even worse, but if you don't have COVID and in my case, my kids were not allowed to go into the hospital because of the high numbers of COVID we had down here, but having yeah, even though I didn't realize or I had my, my own story that I thought it was all a conspiracy and that he was also into all this. It still gave me some kind of reassurance sometimes to see him or to hear his voice. And I think if that would be something that that we could just let people know about the importance to have family members at the bedside and... and and read to the patients and put music on the music they like, and maybe even smells because you, you hear and realize so much. I mean, it's incredible. None of it's it's familiar. No, no. I mean, for example, I had this, this, the tube for the feeding the taste of this of, of whatever they feed you I think it's kind of I had this constant feeling that I had seaweed the smell of seaweed obviously I translated that into I was on this in this hospital and there was you know the transformation to the fish there were fish all around me there one was breaking glass from the walls and every time a a Piece of glass would break, a little fish or a seaweed would fall on the floor. It was all very humid, it was all very wet, and I had the sensation that was like kind of part of the whole thing the food or whatever. And when I woke up, I realized it was really the, the this tube feeding ingredients, whatever it is. But it was just, you know, I, the moment I woke up I, and I was able to speak, I, I you know, I was. I was desperate to get rid of this too, because I, it made me so sick. But so again, as I said before, when you wake up and then you realize all these noises around you and you think, gosh, yeah, that, that, that's it. That's what I had heard or, or, or seen and translated into something completely different. So I don't know if this could help the patients that are sedated, to you know, the for the nurses or family members to explain to them, you know, kind of what's going on and what they're doing, the procedures and everything, for them to understand while they're in coma. But coming back to your initial question, so because they they took so many teeth out. That's definitely a procedure that has to be done in, in under full anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be done being in a coma. It might have helped the healing process because obviously you don't use your mouth, you don't chew, you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't swallow. But, you know, my question is, or what I'm questioning is, why did it take so long and why did they risk all the side effects that can come with an induced coma for 16 days why was so much time lost in between and i'm not a medical person i'm not a specialist i don't know how much is too much or but in my opinion a lot of time was was lost and, and then listening on the, and to, the, to the podcast and reading and the damage that every more day can make on the muscle loss and everything else is really frightening when you think about
0: it. And whole. you just sent me the medications you were on. You were on propofol, midazolam, and fentanyl. And I don't know mm-hmm. what doses, but that's a pretty potent combination. I personally have never given some of midazolam in the ICU, let alone in addition okay. to propofol. So I think you're asking really valid questions. Why? One, why did you have to be sedated? You know, teeth extractions are painful. We can treat pain. We do that as outpatient procedures. Yeah. But I mean, 18 teeth, that, that's significant. I'm sure that did have to be done under general anesthesia, mm. but sure. does that mean that you had to have propofol, midazolam, and fentanyl for 16 days? again, I wasn't there. I'm not part of the care team. I haven't seen your medical records, but we do know that those medications cause delirium, which you Mm -hmm. experienced. And we do know that those medications as well as the delirium prolong your time on the ventilator. So that's why I'm really curious that you heard days before you were extubated. Oh, let's give it a few more days. Oh, let's, oh, she didn't pass. And they said that they were trying to train you. Maybe they were probably, I imagine, weaning down the sedation and things like midazolam, it's a benzodiazepine. You can't just turn it off because after, I mean, it varies, but after a certain amount of time, you become dependent. So you can, if you turn it off, you're going to have withdrawals. So between the withdrawals and, or the delirium, you're going to have people come out swinging and thrashing and trying to pull their tube out, which completely makes sense. And what you're in your case And our response to that, instead of saying, wow, they're in delirium, we need to get her husband involved. We need to communicate. We need to mobilize her. We need to get her back to reality and save her. Otherwise she's going to stay on the ventilator for longer. Instead of all those things, we say, oh yeah, that's a failed sedation vacation. They're Mm -hmm. too agitated. They can't tolerate being awake. Let's turn the sedation back on, try again later, which can end up being days to weeks longer on the ventilator. So your story really brings to light. And it's a prime example of how these medications prolong the time on the ventilator. A lot of times time on the ventilator can be prolonged by new infections. Deep sedation can cause a ventilator associated pneumonia, things like that. But even without that, just this culture of seeing someone that's agitated and responding with slamming them back into their coma. Again, like you said, increases the risks of all those side effects. And then the why as to why that was done that way, that's a really complicated question. There's a lot of cultural things, a lot of misunderstandings behind it. I'm so glad that you were able to be extubated because some people after 16 days, they don't have the muscles to breathe anymore. You weren't in septic shock or any of that. So that really helped your chances. And I'm glad you were able to be extubated, but you still spent 16 days not moving any muscles. Mm-hmm. So what was no, that no. like to try to
1: re-engage with your body again? It was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean I remember the you know, when I when I woke up first of all, I was I was crying nonstop. I was so relieved and happy to be to be back in this world. And I remember because then you you want to start contacting your other family members and and i couldn't hold the phone it was too heavy for me i mean it it was extremely it's still heavy i mean it's it's ridiculous but i couldn't hold it so and then the first day i got on my feet i think it was the following day it's like being on the worst cruise ship you can imagine you can't stand I mean, obviously, you can't stand your on your own feet. You have this tingling, tingling feeling, and, and they just wobble. They just go away. I mean, it's just like crashing down. I mean, it's it in my case, and I wasn't. A, I mean, I'm not overweight or anything. I lost a lot of weight during the coma about 35 pounds
0: and you started Um, out
1: do you mind telling us how much you started out as? i i was at 130 pounds and i'm five foot four so i'm you know i was a normal not overweight not Mm -hmm. super skinny but you know obviously then ending with under 100 pounds it was very at the limit i would say
0: 130 to 100 pounds in 16 days Mm -hmm. and when we think about icu acquired weakness we Automatically go to septic shock, malnutrition, some of these really extreme things. Yeah, you probably had sepsis going on. Yeah, but you weren't in septic shock the whole time, and you weren't getting vasopressors. A lot of the yeah. other things that we consider to be contributing factors to ICU acquired weakness or massive sarcopenia, muscle loss. Mm. But you had that primarily just from being immobilized. Yeah, thirty pounds.
1: Um, yeah, of mostly lean muscle. Yeah. Yeah, because I, and again, I, I, I always used to look after my health a lot. And I'm, you know, this is something that I, I really want to point out and also transmit to people that nutrition plays such a, a huge role before and after, because I went in the whole thing And I had, I was on on no medication. I'm not diabetic. I had no high blood pressure, nothing. I was taking my, you know, I would take my supplements on a daily basis, vitamin C and D and, and things that I needed. And I think that's one of the reasons, first of all, that none of my organs failed during the whole thing. And that also when I started, eating again and obviously I have the the big disadvantage right now that I'm still on soft food since four months now because you know I haven't been able to start with the implant procedure so I can't chew and and I have to eat soft food so I can't really eat the way I used to eat before which lots of salads and, and and things like that but it's extremely important to even though you have to put on weight when you get out, but to do it in a, in a conscious way and to eat healthy and, and get the nutrition because you get out of that so weak and so missing so many nutritions and, and malnourished And I even had issues with my thyroid, which I never had before probably because mm-hmm. of that. And, and that's definitely one of uh, very important aspect to get the, you know, I had anemia, obviously, getting, all, I mean, all my values were <laughs> all over. And I think that helped me as well to get my muscle strength back pretty fast. But it's it's hard. You, you have to really work on it. You have to get up every, you know, even while you're in hospital, get up, sit down, not lie in bed and, and try to do three steps one day, then 10 steps the next day. But the thing is that I had, you know, the PTs will come, would come and see me the few days that I was uh, still in hospital after that. They would do some easy exercises and they would say, okay, you're fine. You, you know, you don't need anything. So you, you, you discharge from hospital and you have no idea what really happened to you and you have no idea what can still come. And... So there are are many aspects that, yeah, nobody would tell me, okay, you have to look after what you're eating. You have to start doing exercises. So I would have huge issues with my left arm. My whole body seemed to be dislocated. And probably that was because my head was always in the same position because I had the Mm -hmm. surgeries on the right side. So they would place my head more to the left. So my whole shoulder arm was was dislocated and super weak. And, you know, I had no idea. So I, I went from, you know, doctors to physical therapy, looking for someone and doing different methods until, you know, I kind of was able to, to improve it. But that's, I mean, To sum it all up, there is so much misinformation and missing information out there. And, you know, never would they talk to me about rehab or about how long it would take or what I could expect once I'm out of ICU. And so you came out of your coma, you can barely hold a
0: phone. They stand you up the first time and you're on pins and needles and your feet in incredible pain. You can barely hold your own weight. You're taking a few steps at a time, progressing each day. And then they discharge you home and don't Mm -hmm. explain here's how you get back to your baseline function. Here's some more resources. Here's more rehab. You were able to walk when you left the hospital.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A few steps. A few steps.
0: Mm So I'm just trying to imagine what it's like. I mean, you have stairs at home, I assume. I do, yeah. Which was Your a good... family really had to help take care of you when you got home.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm lucky that I have you know not only my husband but I have my parents-in-law. They live with us, so you know I would get my food cooked and everything. I couldn't do anything in the beginning. I mean, I could hardly take a shower or wash my hair on my own because of that weakness. And I was so skinny; it it hurt when I was lying in bed. So I, you know, I would have issues sleep I mean I still get very sore when I'm sleeping because you know on one side my shoulder still hurts on the other side my now my knee started hurting and my my sciatic nerve and so I mean it's there's a lot of things that come out after when you discharge so for example I would realize the first three or four weeks that my heart rate was extremely high Mm -hmm. And I guess it's a side effect from the medication, but nobody obviously told me about that. So the first weeks, my heart rate would be over 90 resting. And what
0: happens is when you're laying the whole time, all the flu that normally be in your legs is in your thoracic cavity. Mm -hmm. So it um, really changes the way your heart has to pump to put it simply and and your stroke volume of your heart. So your heart. Doesn't have to work that hard Mm. because it's so full of fluid. And then once you get up, all that fluid shifts down and now your heart's been extremely deconditioned because it hasn't been challenged and it's had a decreased stroke volume for so long. And so that is super normal for ICU survivors to have a really high resting heart rate. And that could take five, six plus weeks to really recover from. And that changes how well you're able to rehabilitate and push yourself and your exercise tolerance and. Yeah, we don't, we don't like, think about that in the ICU and we don't tell people that that's going to no, be how it is.
1: No. Now, the thing is that suddenly my skin would, I would have breakouts like worse when I was a teen and, and um, no horrible breakouts. My hair would start falling out. Um, so, I mean, all these things that, again, nobody tells you, which I guess are pretty normal. And then, you know, in, in the community, I heard that, you know many people experience that but yeah I mean it's it's so many so many little things that and again because I consider myself a, um, a pretty healthy person I could deal with it but I don't want to imagine someone who is diabetic or you know high high heart pressure or whatever I think that can have very drastic long-term effects when you, when you get through all that. So if you evaluate the advantage of being sedated and in, an, in a coma versus the walking ICU when you can be there and, and conscious, I mean, anything you know that helps to at least shorten the period or even avoid it, Because you have your own sickness, you come in with to the ICU. And then when you get out, it's like the balloon has been inflated so much with everything else.
0: Like come in, come in with cellulitis and leave with a neuromuscular condition. Exactly. Um, But that's not the way we see it during that time. I know. I also want to talk about your husband. You said he can barely talk about this still. I think we really overlook the families and their the psychological burden of their experience. I I've never gone 16 days without talking to my husband. I've never yeah. gone 16 days without talking to anybody. So the isolation yeah. that you experienced and the separation that he experienced while wondering if he was going to lose you, of course, yeah. what would that have meant to him for him to be able to communicate with you, for you to be able to use your phone to text him and, or write or, or talk to him during that time. And and for you guys to have support with each other during a
1: life-threatening situation. I think he, he, I mean, luckily he has a very good circle of friends, which gave him a lot of backbone, but I would have gone ballistic if I had been the person out there, because it was not only the situation I was in, it was trying to understand, it was pushing the doctors because, because things were going on so slow and, and getting answers and, and, and under, trying to understand what was going on. And so, yes, I mean, he's, he's got the kind of character that he's kind of closed the chapter and moves on. So he, you know, new chapter, I'm back, let's, which is great because I think it's, but then, you know, I think he also has to process it in a way. And so maybe in a couple of weeks, months, or whenever. So, I mean, you know, I've written it all down, but he hasn't been able to read it.
0: No, absolutely. I'm sure that was extremely Mm. traumatizing. And he is also a survivor of the ICU. Yeah. What did he do to advocate for you to get off the ventilator sooner
1: with the medical team? I mean,
0: Uh huh. you said he was really trying to push them to move
1: things he was along. Get to things push done them. Quicker. Yeah. I, d- I don't really know. I don't really know how he did it and how he managed all. I know that he managed to get the best of the best on board. And again, you know, luckily he has a very big social circle and we have a lot of, medical friend among our friends medical staff among our friends and I think that helped him as well to understand certain processes and why things were done in a way and and this and that but I don't know I don't know what how he did it I know he pushed a lot to get it done I don't know why they didn't want to do it they didn't want to risk it what risk factors there still Mm -hmm. were in place all I can say is once the tube was out, I was completely fine. I mean, they put oxygen mask on, but I, you know, I I didn't really need it. I could breathe perfectly. I had a pediatric tube, so it wasn't a big, one, size, was a big yeah. small one, but that was it. I, I could breathe normally. I could speak. I mean, my voice was creaky for the first three, four weeks, but then normalized i i had no issues no cognitive issues i i, I had no memory issues Thank so you. yeah yeah no it's, so i don't know the blessing it is
0: it um is. It, it is my I, I would suspect that the swelling in your neck and your trachea around your trachea probably didn't last those full 16 days no i I, it would make sense to me that once the swelling had gone down, then the problem was the delirium, and that you were intubated because you were sedated and sedated because you were intubated. Yeah. And it's a really hard cycle to get off. If um, yeah. you turn on sedation and you see agitation, and then the indicator for sedation is agitation, then you treat the yeah. agitation with sedation, but the sedation's causing the agitation. It is the perfect storm. And I'm yeah. sorry you got put on that but I appreciate you being willing to share those intimate details with us and I'm sorry for what you've gone through and I'm so glad that you're doing so well now
1: you look great <laughs> thank you no I mean I, I I do feel I mean it's been not even four months I feel good and there's not a single day I'm not thinking about it obviously I don't feel the same and I think I will never be the same as before you see life differently you see you 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 tend to fall back into your daily routine and and your daily your normal patterns, but you're not the same. I mean, I think it's it's an experience that that is unique in in all the, all its ways, good and bad. I mean, I'm I'm just very happy that I that I'm out, that I'm back, that I'm cured. But if I had been able to avoid it, I would have. I definitely oh, would because it's, it's an experience that you don't want to, you don't want to really go through.
0: And though we can't avoid maybe the very event or the cause of you coming into the ICU, I think you sharing those experiences with us should hopefully help us understand the necessity to avoid exacerbating the harm. We yeah. shouldn't, you shouldn't just be automatically signed up for a traumatizing experience and a neuromuscular condition and extensive sense of rehabilitation and all those things that yeah. come with sedation and immobility, And we should make it a more humane process for you and your husband during that time to be able to communicate for you to be yourself and be autonomous and informed and not having to go back into your medical records to yeah. figure out what happened during the time that you thought you were being turned into a fish yeah and that people were out to kill you that's that's not what I would want for myself and I hate to think what my delirium
1: would consist of I mean it's like when when you know when you go back and whatever you experience on a day-to-day basis there's always the thought behind maybe this could form part of another delirium so you know you're very selective of what movie you're watching like Mm -hmm. I I have to everything has to be positive like i can't see any more death scenes and hospital scenes and all that so that's all gone from my from my watch list and i think the trauma the the the, the effects that all this has long term on a mental level is is very strong i mean i i'm now at the point that i'm thinking of redecorating my bedroom because it reminds me of the whole beginning of the whole Mm. story and and all these everything that reminds me of it I I want to erase it and so I think all the and this is just recent I mean this is like a couple of days only that I have this sudden urge of you know changing everything to not being reminded so I hope there is not much more coming, (laughs) but, but it's, it's a really long process. And I think one has to be aware that once you get out of the ICU, at least that's how I experienced it. But I, I'm sure that many others can confirm first your body. I mean, our body is incredible the way it can heal and our body first tries to heal from the inside out, tries to get back the calories, the muscles, everything that has to be rebuilt. Get your amenia out of your body and all that. And once that is done, then comes the mental part, and then comes the brain and says, "Hey, there's a lot of what things going on. What has happened? The mental issues, the memory losses, the dreams. All that starts at a later stage, and you know we have to be prepared for that. I, I'm not." I'm not taking any medication for that, but it's, I mean, the, the post-traumatic trauma is, is, is huge. It's huge.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and we've heard from other survivors doing EMDR and exposure therapy and just lots of different um, things to try to deal with that because that's a real trauma and that's not something we prepare patients for or offer resources too. We don't, we don't address that. And I, and I obviously would prefer that we prevent it in the first place, but Mm. we especially need to take good care of patients that have experienced delirium. You know, we, we sedate people because we think it's safer. We want, so they sedated you because they wanted you to be safe. They wanted you to stay in bed. They wanted to keep the tube in you, which um, you probably would have been less, you wouldn't have tried to pull the tube out if you were. Awaken, cognitive, cognizant of it. No, so the irony, I mean, Iron- we just, we are not, those are not safe practices. We increased mm. your risk of pulling your tube out and we increase the risk of brain damage, increase the psychological damage. So it was not, it's not a safe practice. No, sometimes it's actually absolutely necessary, you know, risk versus benefits, but protecting your airway probably didn't merit that kind of psychological, psychological trauma. Yeah. And I wasn't there, but these are just some of some speculations. I think the yeah. really backs up, but your experiences, you sharing it, make it so much more real to us. And I'm so grateful for your willingness to share that. And I hope that this is beneficial to ICU community and survivors alike to know that they're not alone, but life is worth living after the ICU.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I hope that, that, I I mean, it has helped me a lot listening to your podcast and I'm sure that it, it helps, you know, everybody who finds it extremely because there is no information out there and hardly any. And it's so important to have this, this backup, this help because no one else understands (laughs) what's really happening.
0: No. And those of us inside the ICU, we don't understand. Yeah. That's that's what you're helping change. Yeah. Thank, you. yeah. Thank you. And I'll probably need more collaboration on the other podcasts in the future. And I'm so grateful for all you're willing to share. And my pleasure. Um, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. And you're doing
1: a great work. Thank you. Thank, Thank you.
0: If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801 472 or reach out to me on Twitter.